In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, of your bountiful goodness, keep from us all things that may hurt us, that we, being ready in both body and soul, may cheerfully accomplish whatever you would have us do. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This morning and for this week, we have uh, Timothy 1, um, verse 15. Let's read it all together. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is most certainly true. Um, Paul was the chief of sinners. Uh, he was not just merely trying to be like at the top to claim most arrogantly, oh, I'm the best of the worst. But he really was the worst. Um, he had been persecuting the church despite having learned all the scriptures, despite um, having maybe been there for most of Christ's ministry as a persecutor. And yet, um, in that context of the verse that he's talking about, Paul is talking about the mercy he has received from God. So this, faithful, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Um, it's very much worthy of acceptance because Paul was the definition of a sinner. Jesus has mercy on him, and not only does that, which he does for all Christians, and is the most blessed thing Paul could receive, Paul is also chosen and sent as an apostle. Um, after having persecuted the church, Paul is the conduit by which Christ grows and strengthens his church, and indeed teaches us um, for all generations to come, um, from the day that Paul is on the road to Damascus onward, through all his missionary journeys, and even here today with, uh, with our reading here, with our epistle lesson. So Paul was a blasphemer, um, kind of like the scribes who call Jesus a blasphemer during our, our gospel message. And um, you might even think that Paul might have been one of the guys standing there throughout his ministry watching him. So it's not like Paul has no idea what's going on with Jesus. Paul did, in fact, know what was going on and he just didn't believe. And so the conversion of Paul is kind of like Jacob um, seeing the angels ascend and descend, where Jacob, in our Old Testament reading, uh, Jacob sees the gate of heaven, uh, and the Lord says, I am the Lord God Almighty, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, your father. Um, Paul saw that too. Pa Paul saw the Lord Almighty on the road to Damascus, kind of like the prophets did in the Old Testament. And just as the prophets were the, the ones who the Lord would give the, the word to speak to and through, the apostles are the same way as well. And they wrote it down, praise be to God. So it's God who makes somebody worthy. Um, it's not Paul who makes himself worthy. It's not you who makes somebody worthy. It's God. And he, just as he deemed Paul worthy of mercy, of uh, saving by Christ, you are deemed worthy also of saving. Unless any of you are worthy by your own reason and strength. Go ahead, raise your hand if you are. Anybody? Is that raising your hand, Jeremy? No? Okay. 
Jeremy thinks he's worthy. Okay. All right. Um, let us go to our, this is our second week of our first article of the creed. So if you want to follow along here, um, just at the bottom, we have the first article of the creed. There's, what is the first article of the creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, life and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So uh, if this is the second chief part of uh, Luther's small catechism and, and sections um, here, if the Ten Commandments tell us what we are to do and not to do, then uh, the creed is not so much a statement about what we are expected to do, uh, but it's really a, an expectation of what we get from God, about who God is in his essence. Uh, God is three in one. Um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God creates, he redeems, and he sanctifies. Um, it used to be, the creed uh, used to be divided into 12 parts, as if uh, the 12 apostles had each written a portion of it. Um, but you know it as three parts, and I, th I think that's a good way to think about it. I'm going to read you a section from Luther's large catechism, just briefly, and then I'll talk about it briefly. So um, this shows and sets forth most briefly what is God the Father's essence, will, activity, and work. The Ten Commandments taught that what we taught that we are not to have more than one God. So it might be asked what kind of person is God in the sense of a quality of person that he is. What does he do? What does God do? How can we praise or show and describe him that he may be known? Specifically, if you think about how is it that God is known, well, that's what the scriptures are. They are there to reveal to us. You hear the book of Revelation um, I guess I take that back and say that the, all of scriptures are the book of Revelation, where God, God's uh, person, his activity, his will, his essence are revealed to us. How does God act? Well, this is how he acts. He's divine, he becomes man, and it's always in our favor. It's always in our favor. So the creed is nothing other than the answer and confession of Christians arranged with respect to the first commandment. It is as if you were to ask a little child, my dear, what sort of a God do you have? What do you know about him? The child could say, this is my God. First, the Father who has created heaven and earth. 
Besides this one only, I regard nothing else as God, for there is no one else who could create heaven and earth. And so if you think about that, there is no one else who could create heaven and earth. This is my God. That sounds a lot like what? What does that sound like? This is my God, nothing else. The first commandment, thank you, that's right. You shall have no other gods, right? The, uh, um, the first article of the creed um, talks about the things that the Lord has provided us. Not only that he creates us, but that he sustains us. So those of you with Bibles, I want you to go jump to Genesis 1 and also John 1. Um, just briefly, we're going to kind of compare the two and see how much of a parallel that is. So if you have the Bible, uh, hopefully you can all find John 1. I mean, uh, Genesis 1. That was supposed to be a joke, but it delivered wrong. So hopefully you can all find Genesis 1, and hopefully I can find my joke. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you jump to John, and you'll, you'll need your hand both places just so, um, so we can jump, flip back and forth. How does John begin his gospel? Well, it's very familiar to us, but he's very much echoing it. So John begins like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So without the Word, nothing that was made was made. Now jump back to Genesis. Uh, in verse 1, we have God the Father Almighty. In verse 3, we have, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. And in verse, I'm sorry, that was verse 2. In verse 3, we have God speaking, and God's word sounds like, in the beginning was the word. So the Trinity is right there at the beginning, in the beginning, and in him uh, nothing was made that was made. Or without him, nothing was made that was made, excuse me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What does God do in the six days of creation? He creates life, that's right. He, he has light, he has life, um, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. If you think about the chapter of Genesis, look at the end of chapter 1, which we've read in a prior week. Look at verse um, 27 and following. He has he made man, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and then he blessed them. So God makes man after he has given earth and heaven, light and darkness, uh, life teen teeming with animals, jump back to John. I love jumping back and forth. So if you guys ever have me teach something again, uh, I'm just going to keep going back and forth. So you guys can make fun of me. That's fine. If you look at verse 14, John 1, 14, another verse we know very much. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's kind of like, not that the word is created, but just as God is creating flesh from the dust of the ground... In Genesis, God takes on human flesh there. And so again, we have a parallel. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. We saw Jesus 
Um, and in the Gospel of John especially, the glory of Jesus is actually Christ hanging on the cross. His humiliation is his glory in the Gospel of John. And so when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, um, uh, paralyzed, if you will, and blood and water pour out of his side, that is the glory of God for you. Um, go back to Genesis, and then this is the last part of Genesis. That they go to Genesis 3.15. Uh, you know it well. The pre-incarnate Christ, God himself, is talking to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, it's just like we beheld his glory. Because this is the promise from Genesis in the beginning that we were going to behold his glory he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, he follows up then with the motif and theme about the ground, the earth, needing to be worked. Um, and as he says to the man, uh, he says, Cursed is the ground, you, in, in um, torment you shall toil with it all the days of your life. And then the woman, you will have pain and childbearing. You might think the motif of the seed being planted in the ground is connected to the years and years that um, the man and the woman and the generations afterwards had struggle coming forth with the seed. Where's the Messiah? Eve bears a son, and what does she say? Do you guys remember? I have, I have a man, the Lord. She thought it was, but it wasn't. And so that was good faithfulness on her part, but it was um, hundreds and hundreds of years later when finally the ground has been ripened and, in fact, the seed grows into a tree. And so God's creation from the onset is not only creating us, but it's designed to sustain us for house and home, food and drink, but also specifically um, to sustain you for eternal life. Yes, Polly, thank you. About, um, what does begotten mean? What does begotten mean? Is that what you're asking? Oh boy, all right. So I'll go to the Greek. Uh, it has two senses in the Greek. Begotten is um, kind of like the same word that you would use for begetting. In Greek, it's ganao. Um, and in that sense, um, begotten means that the source that comes before the Father is begetting something into a child, into a son. And when the same Greek word is used of a woman, it's bearing that which has come forth. And so Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He is the source. Um, from, he, his source is the Father of one essence with him. Um, I think the English word doesn't really do it justice because you can think, like, I got something, like I got the cereal from the... It's not, it's not really the same thing, but you can think of that. What is gotten from God the Father before him? It's, it's, it has to do with source and the genesis of it, the beginning of the genes. That's why the word is gen-a-o or gen-a-o. So it has to do with source. Does that begin to answer your question? No, no it doesn't. <laughs> yes, it has, yeah. Going through are chosen? No, not, I don't think anointing. Pastor Gelbach, do you want to chime in? Um, it's, it's the same uh, word that's translated in the Greek uh, from the Hebrew 
for the creation God made that was, it became that which became from nothing. Mm -hmm. there was, it was not before, and now it is. There mm -hmm. is a, a, uh, so God created by bringing forth light, which was not there, which was there in the sense. In the, and so begotten would be the same sense, is that there was, we did not exist mm -hmm. until we were begotten in the womb of our, our mother. So that giving of life is very the essence of, uh, of existence is behind this word begotten. Yeah, and thank you, Pastor. If I can chime in, do you think I can? I'm going to go to John 3 yeah, yeah, real fine. quick here. Is that, I think that's appropriate. Yeah. So in, in John chapter 3, you guys have heard this word interplay before, born from above. Um, so if you want to jump there real quick, if I can find it. There we go. Uh, are you already there, Verla? So I'm just going to read you some of John chapter 3, just a little bit. You're familiar with this. Uh, Jesus answered him and says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, it's the same word, Polly, born again. Um, so it's not really the sense of actually being born. Jesus, the Greek of what Jesus is saying is, unless one is begotten, and then the word again also means, it, does, it means again, but the Greek word also means from above. And so it's a wordplay. It's almost like, a, like a, a pun in Scripture that Jesus is trying to explain to this guy, to Nicodemus. Unless one is begotten from above, not, not born again, so it doesn't mean you need to be baptized repeatedly. Um, and then the, Nicodemus is like saying, how can you be born again? Because Nicodemus hears the Greek words, other two uses of the, the word that I just said. But Jesus is saying, unless you are begotten of water and the Spirit which is specifically from the source of God. And so to be made anew, to be born renewed, is talking about what Pastor Gelbach was saying, um, something new that wasn't there before, the new life. So, all right, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Pastor Gelbach, um, uh, well, can I just repeat it? She's pointing out that Christ was there from the beginning. Yes, and that's absolutely right. Jesus is talking about baptism here for them. Jesus was not created. I was just thinking, it's like begotten from eternity. I think that's from the... Uh... Yeah, begotten from eternity is referring to Jesus. Begotten from above is referring to Nicodemus being baptized. That's a really good question. And like, oh, go ahead. And that would be a good reason to read the Athanasian Creed, which is what I think what you're referencing. Good. Yes, Polly? If he was begotten from eternity, then, then the father preceded him. Well, he, Polly, so you are asking the I right questions. Go, right? There were, there, were, there were, I think it was over the course of three centuries, they had to come up with the Nicene Creed, and then it eventually developed on um, to talk about not it only was from the father, but from the father and the son, I mean, the church fathers argued about this for a while, so you were asking the right question, and I don't think I'm smart enough to explain all of it, so, um, but that's all right. <laughs> Pastor Gelbach, I don't know if you want to chime in more or table it for now. We're trying to explain something in eternity that we have no knowledge of, 
And we have our only experience in this world. And therefore, we use a term like monogenesis or only begotten, uh, that there is none like Christ. There is none that have this relationship, has its source from the Father in, as one. They are one, uh, is one God. The Father is God, the Son is God. And this uh, only begotten emphasizes that relationship from eternity uh, that uh, we have no concept of. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Sorry, Polly. Yes. Well, oh, isn't this why we read the Athanasian Creed several times a year? Daily? Because, <laughs> well, some of us have parts memorized, but with the mm -hmm. old language. Um, but that does, it explains, but it doesn't really explain because there is no explanation. So again, it's a trust, it's a faith message. thing that, that we need to just right. leave God be God. <laughs> yeah, it's what he right? told us. And that's why it's revealed um, through scripture, through God's word. And it's not just something we reasoned that made all the way sense. So, all right, Pastor Gelbach, last thing, and then we need to move on. I don't it reminds me of the discussion I had with children online, which in the wardrobe, the deeper magic, you know, the deeper knowledge <laughs> yes. that is beyond, before all of us, before any one of us. Yes. So it's that deeper knowledge. Very good. Yes, that's wonderful. Uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word gives life and has created and sustains all things. We thank you for the sun the moon and the stars which give light to the earth and order our days and seasons. We give thanks to you for the expanse of the sky, for the water that sustains all life, and for the dry land upon which we live. We give thanks to you for the plants and animals of your creation. You have given all of this to us for our good and for our enjoyment. We give thanks to you that you have created us in your image, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply, and to have dominion over the creation. We thank you for ordering our lives and giving us rest and refreshment through your word. But most of all, we thank you for redeeming us and all creation from sin and from death through the gift of your only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in you as our creator and to believe in your son for eternal life and salvation through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Very good. And you'll notice also, Polly, trust was even in the prayer specifically relating to that. So, good. Um, I'd like to go on just a little bit. Uh, I, I had three weeks to try to cover some things about Lutheran education. So I'm going to try to cover up some loose ends here. And um, I'm very open to questions. So, Cindy, where are you? Cindy asked me a plague of questions. I think she ran away today because I, I got mad at her. I was like, Cindy, stop. So um, education is different than catechesis. And you guys have all heard the word catechesis again and again. And that's great. But I want to go to the actual Greek word for what catechesis means. Does anybody actually remember what the word itself means? Did I hear somebody? It does not mean teaching in the actual sense of the word. It's very related, so I'm not denying that. But what does the word actually mean? Paul? Yeah, I was taught uh, cat echo. Yes, A+. Do you know, and cat echo means what? To repeat, thank you. So to repeat again and again is what 
cat echoing is. So your catechism is your little book of the things you're supposed to repeat again and again. And what is the purpose of repeating something again and again? Is it just to drive our minds numb? <laughs> it's to learn it by heart. Not just memorize, thank you, but to learn it intrinsically, to inwardly digest it, if you will, um, so that it becomes part of you. And in that way, Verla does teach you. Yes, Didache was... You are stealing my fire, Verla. <laughs> that's right. Yes, Didache, that's very good. Yes, Didache specifically has a sense of teach in the instruction. And that's very, that's very accurate. We need both. Didache, that word is closer to what you would think of as education or instruction. And catechesis is more in the sense of you're going to live it repeatedly, echoing it, so that it becomes part of you. Now, raise your hand if you listened to the radio on the way here this morning. Okay, what were you being catechized this morning in? Country music. Country music, okay. Uh, to some extent, that's wonderful because God did give us the fruits of the earth and music to listen to twangy country tractor songs. Um, <laughs> but also, <laughs> the, the point about catechesis that I want to make is when you say catechesis, the actual sense of the word has to be, is kind of generic. It just means what is it that you're catechized into. For example, when I was in college, a lot of my people down the hall were being catechized into Mario Kart and uh, video games, okay? And, and I, I did a, some of my share of that, but never when I had to do my homework. And, <laughs> but, but the sense of that is, is what is it that you are reading and inwardly digesting, and that you are learning by heart that it becomes part of you. And so the rest of this, what I want to talk about here is God created his word for our good to enrich us that we should have at a school, and we do have at our school. But where is the place of those other things? Where is the place of math? Do we need to be catechized in math, like times tables? Yes. Um, do we need to learn grammatical constructs so that we can actually understand what each other are say is saying? Yes. Do we need to do it more? <laughs> do we need to know, do it more than the Word of God? No. And so the trick then is, what is it that you are being catechized in? What is it that your catechesis is? Um, parents are given the authority by God um, to be in charge of that which their children are catechized into. It's their job. It's in scripture, and we'll even read some more verses about it here in a second. Um, parents have that job. And, and so at, a, at Peace Lutheran Academy, they're delegating to the teachers here that um, they're saying, this is what we'd like our child to be catechized into, the program that you have here, where we're going to do grammar and logic and rhetoric. We're going to sign up for history, um, really, really, really good books and really, really old books, and, um, and mathematics. And... That's what you're signing up to. So when you sign up your child for, um, let's say, a state school, you are willing to let them be catechized into whatever they're going to teach you. Now, that's okay, but you just have to remember that in the child's life when you send them off to college that they need a good Lutheran church nearby. Why? Not rhetorical. Why? Oh, Cindy, you are here. Hi. Yes, why? Yes. Because, Cindy, what happens at college to your child's faith? Sorry, Lauren. 
It's attacked repeatedly by the devil. And if your child is catechized into all the things of the college and doesn't go to church and it doesn't have a firm foundation, well, then that learn, the things that have been learned by heart fall by the wayside because they've been overtaken. Okay? So that's, I'm trying to scare you. I don't know if you're aware, Lauren. So um, <laughs> that's the same at every level of education. You have in, in preschool, you have it in um, daycare before a child is um, out of brick and mortar all day. And you also have an elementary, in middle, and high school, in college. And then also, it still happens after school, what you're listening to on the way to church in the morning, country music. So was it a Christian country singer? No. No, okay, all right. So. Well, we don't know. We don't know that they are or not. Okay, you're right. That's fine. Hold on, Cindy. Not yet. I do want to hear your question. Don't, don't unraise your hand. I still just, I just want to get to my point here. So. You have to pick a type of education structure where your child is going to be catechized and educated, enriched in um, God's word and God's creation. Now, you can be catechized, kateko, and instructed, didake, in God's word. And you can be catechized and didako, didas, didak, I can't even say it, didake. You can be instructed in things that aren't God's word. And... What we need to talk about is what is the balance of how much of those other things to, to learn. So classical Lutheran education is, the classical part means you love learning. You love hearing God's word and the best of God's creation. The Lutheran part is specifically talking to receiving the catechesis and instruction of the Lord over those other things. Um, a good school is well-ordered. And that is something that we can learn from the world, from the country singers. That the, the country singers of education programs of history, they had well-ordered schools. If you think about the schools of Athens or the schools of Germany or of England, um, Cambridge and Oxford were elite for a reason because they worked hard at it and they were well-ordered. I won't say that they were Christian, at least not the whole time. And certainly, I've been there. It wasn't that Christian when I was there. Here's something from Luke 16. And then, Cindy, I will call on you. Luke 16. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world, a.k.a. country singers, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Meaning... Even the people who aren't Christian have a well-ordered structure. They have a good system, and they know things. They know math and science. They know history. Yet, the same uh, passage, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and country music. I mean, God and mammon. The point to say that, is mammon something that you can never have? Is, is money something that you should never use as a Christian? I'm swearing it off, never using it. No, you need it. God made it. It's a good part of God's creation, but the problem is when it supersedes in your life and becomes your master. So what is to be learned from Jesus' teaching here is that the good things of his creation are to be used, are to be learned, and to be rejoiced in, but never to supersede the word of God. And so the part of the explanation of the first article 
which is at the very end. For all this, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. Certainly means being catechized here in this building with the word of God, but also part of thanking and praising him in your everyday life to be of good cheer is in fact to live your Christian life in the best things that God has given you and to benefit from them. Never to supersede the word of God, but you are allowed to use math and you should learn math as a school. You are allowed to listen to country music as long as you know hymns better. <laughs> and <laughs> I can't say I'm good at that either. Um, but, but that's kind of what it's saying is to thank and praise, serve and obey um, primarily means the word of God but it also does mean to rejoice in the things that he has given. So that is where I'm going to go from there. I'm going to go to Cindy's question. Well, my question was more of a comment, I guess, um, when you were talking about catechizing. I don't know, I'm older than you, but when I was in public school, we sang hymns, Christian hymns at Christmas time. We, I, I'm from Hickville, Montana, so a lot of the, it, we were all kind of like-minded in that sense. Um, now you go to public school and you try to sing a Christian hymn and you are called a bigot or a hater or um, the ideology, sorry, my was <laughs> of the woke movement, you can see from you, what you just explained is just killing the uh, Christ likeness in our in our youth. Yes. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Put the mic closer to your mouth. Okay. Plus Pastor so, Bender so does something. that make sense? Like, I just my point was that how sad. Like, my parents sent me to public school, and my faith was not attacked as much as I think it would be now. That was my point okay. because of yes. the woke so, uh, ideology in schools. Yes, so I will say that's absolutely right, that I do think the attacks of the devil are more enunciated in public schools of the day now. However, I will say that the attacks of the devil are in all schools, not just public schools that are super woke, but also public schools that sing hymns. The attacks are still there. Um, they're here at Lutheran schools. They are in Peace Lutheran Academy. And that is why we need to receive the life that God gives us. We need to hear the word again, and that's why confession and absolution is such a powerful gift from God. Um, so I would say if, if the best thing that you have around you is a public school, um, and you're singing hymns there, then maybe that's, that's pretty good. So not that I would advocate for public school over this, but it's, it's not as black and white as to say that the public schools now are woke, so that means everything at a Lutheran school is solved. Um, or vice versa, exactly, yes, yeah. It doesn't stop in school. Um, I happen to work and have worked for almost 17 years at one secular company. And you know, you're fighting against people putting their pronouns in their email signatures and business resource groups for pride and you know, all sorts of different things. The more that I notice happens is the more people try to include, it excludes. So the more they call out pride, um, you know, uh, black professionals group, a women in leadership group, um, the more that you call out these business resource groups, you're 
like alienating the other folks that aren't part of that. Right. Um, and I think that's a very you know, slippery slope as well. It's very 1984, uh, to, include, to include is really to exclude, is a reverse definition. Uh, that, thank you. And actually, me referencing 1984 as an example of, of good literature. Have you guys read 1984 before? Good literature that I don't think is expressly Christian. I don't know if the author's Christian. But uh, Philip's shaking his head no. But the point can totally be used and learned from by Christians to support our life here. And that's why we do need to advocate in things more than just the sanctuary building, but in uh, the world around us. Yes, Jordan. I'd say my comment is the things of the secular world are very easily identifiable. You know, the pronouns and email, stuff in public schools, the blatant rejection of God. The very dangerous thing is what you said about the you know, inclusion, that there's still sin and there's still temptation even in private schools and Christian day schools, you know, and those are the ones that you should be on your guard more for because they can, they can rear themselves without you even noticing, and it's something that you might be able to adopting without knowing you've adopted it because you let your guard down yes. based on the environment. Amen. Well, actually, if I can use that for a brief segue into what, what I want to talk about. So um, there is concern that within the realm of classical education that the emphasis on the classics will supersede the Lutheran part. And it ought never to do that. Um, and part of that issue then is that it creeps in because you have something so good. For example... The scribes and the Pharisees have something good. They think they have their good works, which make them good by themselves. And it would be very easy to think about, oh, we are the smartest people here. We have the best jobs. We are classically educated. Um, or we have the best running business, if you're not just talking about a brick-and-mortar school. It creeps in, and then you think and confuse it with being Christian. For example, with the whole 2020 debacle is there was a major blurring of lines between um, what it meant to be a conservative Republican and what it meant to be a Christian. And I saw a lot of people like Donald Trump and Caitlin Eniani, or however you say her name, conflating the two. Like, we're going to quote scripture to support that you should vote for Donald Trump. That is not how it worked. That is not what scripture is about. That doesn't mean that some of the things advocated for um, might have been good or bad, and I'm not trying to make a political comment. My point is just to say that the word of God should not be conflated with the things of the world, so you have to think very carefully about what does it actually mean to benefit from these other things and still be thanking and praising God. Okay, I'm going to move on to other Bible passages unless anybody has a question there. So, here we go. So, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Um, to tend and keep it is the directive of God of what Adam and Eve should be doing. And it's kind of still the, the directive here. It's the first kind of thing of he said, go get a job, Adam, kind of like that. What are you doing? Got to tend and keep the garden. Um, it has double connotation, one intended meaning which with two uh, parts that come out of it. And one part is to go get a job and work, but the other part then you could think of is, um, Adam, you got to work the ground because that's where the seed will come out of, okay? So it's still there. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Um, you've heard me talk about the phrase, very good. What does that actually mean in the Hebrew? 
Does anybody remember what I said? It doesn't just mean very good. When you say something's very good, do you want a kind of good taco? You don't? It's a superlative. What taco do you want? Very good taco. I want the very good taco, which is the best taco, right? Okay, God didn't just make kind of like an okay earth and heaven. He made the best earth and heaven from the get-go. It was perfect. So the very good there is, as Verla said, it's the superlative. It's the best. Um, then you have other commands there, like be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, which we talked about is in the sense of building up a culture. However, think about it this way. To fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it is not really only talking about the word of God, but the, the demand or the command by God to tend and keep is also talking about the plants and the ground and the things that come out of it, which also applies to things like literature and mathematics, history. To tend and keep it means to learn those things. So um, let's go here to Proverbs then. Any questions so far? Yes. Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so Jenny, will you say it again, please? That, he's got the microphone for you. I said, does subduing the world also mean keeping God's word above the influences from the world? Yes, or absolutely. over the world? Very good, yes, thank you. To have, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so I'm going to read you from Proverbs uh, 1 and 9, and then I'm going to spend, a, what, what time is it? Do you have, a, anybody have a watch? <laughs> Okay, I'm going to take a, a few minutes at the end and talk about some of the key words of classical ed. So, um, Proverbs 9, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. The wisdom of the Lord um, is referring to the gospel, to Jesus uh, wisdom has built her house, that's this. Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. So scripture defines wisdom, godly wisdom, specifically as having the wisdom of the things that are here, specifically in here. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction, didache, actually it's in Hebrew so it wouldn't be that. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Teach a just man, a man who has been justified, and he will increase in learning. That is kind of, again, with Proverbs, I mean, it's all over Proverbs. I, I don't have time to go through all of it, but um, Christian wisdom, as defined by, um, well, God through Isaiah, through Paul, through Solomon, is not about the wisdom that Plato, Aristotle, um, and Socrates are defining, although those things can certainly give us wisdom as well, but taken with a grain of salt that we are still tending and keeping the garden that God gives us of his very good creation. So, without further ado, I'm going to just kind of list a laundry list of all the education terms that I think you should know. Ready? Here we go. And I have 10 minutes and then at questions. Okay. So, truth, beauty, and goodness. Um, Plato came up with three things, truth, beauty, and goodness, of the things that are the most true are the things to be pursued. You don't want just kind of true things. 
You want the most true. You don't want things that are only kind of beautiful. Everybody strives for the most beautiful. And you don't want things that are only kind of good. You want the best taco we have to offer. That's what Plato and Socrates were saying. And I don't think there's anything that Christians would really disagree with there. In fact, it complements perfectly. And um, Jesus himself kind of gives us the answer. What does he say in John? I, what is it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's, that's right. And he says other things very much like that, too, to say that what is the true, the good, and the beautiful? Well, it's Jesus. Uh, he says so. But also, you should look for statements that are true. For example, in our logic class, we've been talking about um, proving logical statements. Is it fair to say that, uh, let's see if I can come up with a syllogism here on the spot. I won't be able to do it. Uh, I, w I won't make August do one. Um, every human is a boy. Every boy is a girl. Therefore, every human is a girl. Did that flow in order? It did flow in order. Was it true? No. So you should not strive for that. That is not an example of truth. However, without the model of logic that I just threw at you to analyze it, you don't actually know how to discuss it. The flip side of this is go on Twitter, or whatever it's called now. It's called X, I'm sorry. Um, and try to talk to people with logical statements about whether or not their pronouns are true or not. Okay, so that when Jesus says, I am the truth, well, he's not saying I am the true definition of your personal pronouns on X or Twitter, but what he is saying is you should pursue things that are true. So truth, beauty, and goodness is very much a complement for scripture. Next, there's a phrase called the great books. And you might think of that the best books ever written are the ones that have the things that are most parallel to God's word. Pastor Gelbach, what are you reading in On the Bus? Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, what is, who is Aslan? Okay, it's Jesus, right? It's Jesus, and although C.S. Lewis doesn't exactly parallel scripture, he does a pretty good job of pointing to something greater than his own literature. Tolkien does it too. Now, does Homer do it in his Odyssey and the Iliad? <laughs> That's right, he does not. August, why not? Are there Christian morals being espoused, August? Are there anything that are even vaguely close to Christian virtues there? I mean, Penelope, but... Okay, maybe Penelope, all right. So are there things so that we can learn there from August? Yes. Yes, and so the best things ever written do have hints of truth. Um, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, and maybe, maybe this is Tolkien, the best... The, the best stories always parallel the true story. The best things about any stories you have here parallel the true story. So you can make me an argument that Harry Potter is better than Lord of the Rings, and you will lose. But I think Pastor Bender likes Harry Potter, and I think he will argue that there's sacrificial love there in the end. Well, why is sacrificial love such a good theme? Harry Potter's not Christian, but why, would it, you could, why could you argue that it's worth reading? Because there's sacrificial love. What? Because it follows the pattern. And the pattern comes from Christ. So truth, beauty, goodness, great books. Um, 
likewise, with the best books ever written, you should study the best artists who ever lived. Bach, um, Albrecht Dürer, that one's for Polly. And um, the best artists who ever, ever lived in any category of art of creating goods. Now, would you ever settle for something less? I mean, personally, I'm not going to go to Taco Bell because I think my wife can make better tacos. Um, so I would always strive, and this is the sensation, is you should always strive for the best things that God has made and given to us, even if pagans came up with them. Um, we have the liberal arts, which I talked about a little bit. There are seven art forms that are just worth learning in themselves. Uh, ask me about that. I'll really be nerd about it. Um, here's three more phrases. Time-tested, long-lasting, worthwhile. Do you want a taco that's not worth it? Does your digestive system want a taco that's not worth it? Do you want a taco that isn't time-tested, that it's the first time it's ever been sold? No, you want a taco that the reviews on TripAdvisor are like, this is the, this is the best taco I have ever seen. That's the one you want, right? Um, do you want a taco that is... Uh, okay, I'm going to pick on White Castle here. The phrase long-lasting... Uh, do you want something that has long-lasting, sustaining benefit for you? Yes. Do you want White Castle? No. Okay, all right, good. That's, there you go. Um, some teaching tactics to do these things are memorization in the sense of catechesis because it causes you to do what, Angela? Memorization causes you to learn by, learn by heart. Everybody say, learn by heart. You need to recite good poetry and God's word specifically, which we do here every school day morning. But also, maybe some good poems would be really good to learn because they're just good to learn. Um, you should imitate the master artists. How many of you had tried to write a Bach chorale before? You have? Yes. That's wonderful. How many of you think, well, wait, maybe if we just imitated, we would come up with better hymns? I'm not saying you're going to become Bach. But wouldn't it be better to strive to be like him than to strive to be like Katy Perry? Okay, all right, prove my point. Um, narration is the phrase of telling stories repeatedly. And um, Mrs. Volkortzen does this really well where she forces the kids to narrate things back. Um, and I was supposed to sub for her and I did a terrible job. Um, but telling stories back, stories are much more captivating. Narnia is very captivating because you kind of get into this whole world and you get sucked in. That's, that's an entering school that there are narration, but classical ed hits on that one specifically. Um, unfortunately, I can keep going, and I know I'm short in time. Questioning is a really good teaching technique. Pastor Bender does this excellently. Uh, if you come to chapel, he's always asking repeated questions. Um, in the classroom, the middle schoolers question you, and they pepper you with annoying things that make me off my guard. So, Cindy, when you ask me annoying questions, I'm really glad for it. Because it makes me smarter and puts me so I can still be learning. They do it at home, too. Yes, okay, very good. <laughs> yes, so questioning is good. And that's Socrates does that method, but also Jesus does that method. Um, defending arguments is something that you, the reason you learn grammar and logic and rhetoric is so you can learn to defend yourself. Could Socrates defend what he was saying? Yes. Could the Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers defend their arguments? Yes. What happens if we had Christians defending their arguments as well because they learn from these techniques from the other people? If we order our education system like that, wouldn't it be better that way? 
Why don't we learn from the best rather than just say, okay, well, we're not them. We're just going to do our own thing. It'd be better to learn from them. So finally, giving speeches, I think the, the prime one is um, if you teach your kids to give speeches in middle school and learn how to defend things when they get to college, when they get to high school, um, they're going to be able to defend their faith. Maybe some of them will grow up to be teachers or professors or pastors and learn how to give speeches or sermons or teach classes on these sorts of things. Or in an email with he, her, them, whatever pronouns, maybe you can have short, witty phrases that slowly teaches your workers, friends. I don't know if that's even possible. Or maybe they just hate you. That's what Jesus promised. Jesus promised they would hate you. Sorry. So unfortunately, I have to cut off. Um, if you do have more questions, please ask me. There is a sign-up for the Reformation Fair. It is on the Bible cart, and it will be available with the elder after the service. Um, the Reformation Fair is for everybody. Um, there will be children there. We will have cat's meat stew, and I will make fun of you if you're not wearing a costume. So <laughs> let us uh, pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Father, your blessed son called Luke the physician to be an evangelist and physician of the soul. Grant that the healing medicine of the gospel and the sacraments may put to flight the diseases of our soul, that with willing hearts we may ever love and serve you. Through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.